0: welcome to dr. doctor the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host dr tom mcgovern
1: and i'm dr chris stroud and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically catholic perspective
0: today our guest will be heard across the ewtn global catholic radio network she is dr robin lynn trepto she's a phd psychologist a very active member of the catholic psychotherapy association and she's going to talk about the life-changing effects Of how expectations influence outcomes now i met her in february 2020 bc before covid i was attending a cma (laughs) national board meeting in san diego where robin was accompanying her husband craig who's the chairman of the meeting later this year in san diego for the cma in the van i heard her talking about a fascinating concept one that's very personal to her as both a mother and a clinical psychologist and i immediately said to her That would make a great episode of Dr. Doctor. So finally, after recording 45 episodes of coronavirus-related topics, we finally get to make good on that discussion from so long ago. And Chris, Robin's story deals with trisomy 21, which most people know of as Down syndrome. And those terms are especially important in obstetrics. I know you have some thoughts about this.
1: Yeah, it is. It's important for us as Catholics and Catholic listeners and Catholic parents. And for me as an obstetrician gynecologist, the topic of trisomy 21 or other chromosomal abnormalities that together we call aneuploidy, uh, where the count of chromosomes uh, is incorrect. In this case, three copies instead of the normal two copies of the 21st chromosome, but there's trisomy 18 and trisomy 11 and other examples of trisomy, but we talk about this a lot, and often it is the proverbial white elephant. So much of prenatal diagnosis in obstetrics, uh, not just in America but worldwide, is designed to make earlier and earlier diagnoses of conditions like trisomy 21 so that the mother still has the option to terminate their pregnancy. Worldwide, roughly 90%, it said, of children with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome are aborted. In fact, it was only a couple of years ago that Iceland became uh, first and foremost in the news. They were celebrating that they had eliminated trisomy 21, and they had done so by aborting all of those children before uh, they were born. So trisomy 21 is an important topic for all of our listeners, young and old, parents and non-parents. I uh, like to be considering,
0: and we uh, hold in high esteem uh, a physician, Doctor Jerome Lejeune. Don't we?
1: <laughs> we do, don't we? the The medical guild that you founded uh, here in northeastern Indiana is named after Doctor Jerome Lejeune. It's hard to get out sometimes, and he was a fantastic French pediatrician uh, and geneticist who discovered that Down syndrome was actually a result of an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. And he spent the balance of his career, uh, and many, many agree that he cost himself the Nobel Prize because he spent the rest of his career trying to convince society not to terminate those children, not to institutionalize them, uh, and not to treat them the way that all too often they are and, and were treated. But just a great, great man that did so much for pediatrics and, and for genetics. Uh,
0: in fact, when he received uh, one year in the 60s, the, or, or the early 70s, the top award for the International Society of Geneticists for this discovery, he spoke to the audience about not using testing for it to abort babies and not a single person applauded after he received the
1: award and he wrote to his wife that night that he lost his nobel prize and and quite literally he probably did his career never never recovered from his position that he took but what a noble man to step into the breach and and to hold the position for life
0: And, and in fact just in may of 2020 uh his wife uh died he died in, I think, 1994 or 96. And he was the first president of the
1: Pontifical
0: Academy of Life and was friends with St. John Paul II.
1: Well, just remarkable man. You know, um, in my specialty, I, I'm blessed to get to interact with some really amazing families, uh, women and men doing their best to live out their faith and to raise their children. Uh, and I have to think of a great uh, trisomy 21 story from a couple of years ago. And and I'll change the names because they may be listeners and they didn't give me permission <laughs> to share. But it was from a large family um, that had a child with trisomy 21 among their many children. And the mother was telling me in the course of her pregnancy that I was uh, helping her through, she said, my son, one of my sons the other day said, I hope this baby is like Johnny. Johnny's not the baby's name. Um, but she, he said, I hope this baby is like Johnny. And Johnny was the child uh, with trisomy 21. And the mother was a little taken aback by that. And she said, well, why is it that you would hope that? Uh, and her son said, with big eyes and complete honesty, because Johnny's so amazing, I wish we could have another one like him. <laughs> um, through the eyes of children, you know, yes. uh, bring them, don't get in the way on their way to Jesus, because that's where they belong. Amen.
0: Oh, before we go to our break, a, a easy trivia question. I tried to have mercy on our good listeners. Question is this. Trisomy 21 describes a condition where a person has three copies of chromosome 21 in each cell instead of the normal two, one from each parent. So how many chromosome pairs do humans have? And second part of the question, what do we call the last numbered chromosome pair instead of referring to that pair by a number? We'll have that answer at the end of the show here on Dr. Doctor. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor with our special guest today, Robin Lintrepto. She would be actually a Dr. Doctor herself because she has two PhDs. She's passionate about helping doctors think differently about babies who have problems from early in their lives. She holds a doctorate in child and family psychology from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and a second doctorate in infant and early childhood development with an emphasis on mental health Developmental Disabilities from Fielding Graduate University. Robin, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
2: Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Chris.
0: We're
1: happy to have you with us.
0: Yeah, no, so this is, this topic is about how expectations, how bias, how self-fulfilling prophecies can play a role in shaping a life. It's quite a personal story for you, isn't it? Please tell our listeners why it is so personal.
2: Um, so thanks, Tom. As you said, I'm passionate. My, my passion was inflamed the day my eldest son was born, and doctors judged he had a diagnosis that would lead to suboptimal intelligence based on how he looked. So I had no prenatal labs or no flags if his trisomy 21 genome were missed, and so were any physical markers on the ultrasound. So as I gazed into Karen's eyes, I saw an intellect that was just like my elder daughters. Um, They were documented as superior intelligence because they were guinea pigs in my graduate studies. Uh, But around (laughs) me, yeah, that's what happens when your mom's a graduate student. Um, But around me unfolded uh, this chaos. People seemed in a panic. As a psychologist, I recognized it right off as the drama of self-fulfilling prophecy, Rosenthal. And I set out to dismantle it for the sake of my son and who God created him to be. Um, not to say that it was or even now is an easy road, but two decades later he's excelling with a 3.0 GPA. He's studying philosophy and theology at a rigorous, passionately Catholic university. Whoever thought it could
0: happen. So, well, so Robin, in other words, The people looked down at Kiernan and they thought he had what most people refer to as Down syndrome and said, oh, this means A, B, C, D all the way through to X, Y, and Z. Is that correct?
2: Yep. Yep. Basically, those are the words they use. Yes. But we don't use that language in our family. Um, In fact, I coined a a term um, double scoop because (laughs) I think that language um, contributes to that prophecy down the road.
0: So double well, you know, scoop referring to?
2: Um, well, a double and extra of that uh, 21st crime chromosome. So having so three in
0: instead words, of two. So in other words, Kiernan has three chromosome 21 copies in each of his cells, whereas the vast majority of people only have two copies.
1: So he got an extra scoop of yep, chromosome exactly. 21. You know, it's funny when I hear you say that. I'm the father of two adopted children in addition to my biological children. And a lot of times people will say, weren't you afraid when you were adopting that you wouldn't know what you were getting? Um, (laughs) And I often respond just the way Tom did. And I say, do you think you know what you're getting with your biological children? You know, good, bad, or otherwise? Um, And it made me think of that when you said, you know, your son essentially has lived up to your expectations of him. But those expectations could have been so different um, if you had if you had chosen to listen to that advice. I think about the old country song that says, Thank God for unanswered prayer. In your case, it would be thank God for advice ignored.
2: Yeah, abso- absolutely. And I believe God put him in our family for a reason. I knew that from moment one. Um, because we weren't going to have those lower expectations. And I think the biggest surprise for me was, you know, early on I recognize it, like I said, but given I'm a Caucasian white woman, I didn't know what implicit bias feels like from the inside. Hmm. So I thought, the self fulfilling prophecy, you name it, and that's it, you get rid of it. But what really happened is I had people peering in my door asking, does your son have XYZ diagnosis? He's in the swimming pool. And those are the,
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, so those things, they just, they zap a parent's energy, mm. right? Because you have to get that out of your system just to get back to a place of saying, wow, I have this great kid, you know, can't wait to see what he does in life.
1: Now, at the beginning of the segment, you said you looked into his eyes and uh, and you saw a great intellect. Uh, we're In retrospect, we're, Were those the eyes of a mother or were they the eyes of a scientist uh, or both?
2: Well, I would say both. Um, I clearly recall, and I think most mothers can probably do this. So I remember looking to my daughter's eyes, right? I looked into my son's eyes. They're the same, right? He's, he's holding gaze, all of those things that are really important. I'm an infant mental health specialist. So there are some key things that you look for in terms of how intellect is built. Um, there's a theory by a, um, a scientist named Stanley Greenspan. And his whole idea is that intelligence in general is built in this back and forth engagement between parent and child. So it becomes circles of engagement that go on, and that's how people get their intelligence in life.
1: It's fascinating to hear you say that because I can remember as a new parent with our first child, uh, my dear wife and I would look at our a few day old son and say, "You know, look at the way he slobbers. He's clearly brilliant. I, I think he's, I think he's destined for greatness." Uh, and we meant it. We meant it yes. in every every sense of our being. We meant it.
2: Absolutely, and that's part of my point because parents of kiddos with trisomy 21 aren't really allowed to say yeah. or even think those things. So I did a small pilot study of pediatricians, and one of the questions I asked them was: if you had advice to give this parent of this baby um, who had trisomy 21, what kinds of advice would you give them? None of those doctors said, Oh, that baby's a normal baby. And On the positive side, they would say things like, well, you know, intelligence isn't everything in life. He'll be happy and cheerful and offer a lot to other people. Hmm. So that's really striking when you're a parent and you have this baby. It's not so much what doctors do or don't do or what they say or don't say. Hmm. Oftentimes it's the silence or the absence, the gaps.
0: So what were the main blunders that physicians made at the birth of Kiernan that you heard or saw yourself?
2: Like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't so much what they did or didn't do. We had a super supportive uh, OB, our pediatrician was very supportive, but what really happened is that neither of those doctors stepped in to tell a lot of the other well-meaning folks uh, to keep them from making the blunders. So nurses took my son from me right away. I protested and then It created respiratory distress. I'd read some works by Ashley Montague, the book on touching. So I knew that he needed me close to him to hold him and that that would soothe the distress. Mm. But because he had this diagnosis, he had these facial features, people couldn't trust me to be the parent who had some instincts, who had some wisdom. And so the doctors didn't step in and say, let the mom hold the baby. You know, you can put the monitor on him or you can, you know, test it um, while she's doing it. And so as a result, he had a three week NICU stay. Had the whole gamut, feeding tubes, ventilators. It was awful. Um, And then um, the neonatologist, um, she just saw a a diagnosis too. So he was kept in there far too long and the discharge meeting was just pathetically off-putting.
1: You know, it, it's sad and fascinating how what what I think we do in the medical profession is we we rob mothers like you of hope. You know, we, we think that we have this set of data that's that's so powerful that when I present that data to you, if you're capable of understanding, you'll agree and you'll give up, even though I'm sure that's not what any of us desire to do when we're in the process of doing that. But in reality, and in listening to you describe it, that's precisely what we do. We're saying to you, it's over. You shouldn't have this eternal hope that you have. And that's really tragic, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's really good, good insight, Chris. I think it's really hard for even good and wise doctors to take a risk, though, and listen to parents when they see a diagnosis that comes with so much emotionally laden negative baggage. Um, so, yeah.
0: What do you wish those doctors and nurses had said and done
2: um i wish they would have let my baby be a baby that they would have seen him as a as a baby um instead of um it almost seemed like there was a need to convince me um you know that i should lose hope or that things were were terribly bad like for example a nurse lactation consultant insisted on invading my privacy to check to see if my son had a good latch to the breast. Now, she knew that I was an experienced nursing (laughs) mother, right? But we still, because he has this diagnosis, we presume he doesn't have the muscle tone, he doesn't have the suck and swallow reflexes coordination to be able to breastfeed well. So they sent him home on a G-tube and, well, we took it out, as (laughs) as did the Child, the family of another medical family we knew whose son was sent home on a, on a G2, right? We knew he needed to use his muscles if he was going to get, his, get his nourishment from the breast, right?
1: Now, you mentioned uh, at the beginning that's what you do when your mother is a graduate student, but help us <laughs> and our listeners understand where you were in your life and in your career career as a mother and career uh, as a would be scientist. Where were you when your son was born? And what role did, uh, did your son's birth play sort of in shaping your career?
2: Um, so where I was when my son was born, I had just finished my uh, graduate postdoctoral training hours. I was actually a week, a week shy. He came a little bit early. And so I was just finishing up those hours, getting ready to be licensed. Um, so I had intended and I did set up a small private practice after he was born. But a few years into that, it became apparent that I just had some differences with how I saw um, psychology in the world. Some of it related to kiddos like my son. So I took a break from psychology um, for a while until I went back to fielding and got that second doctorate.
0: So Robin, your son just finished his first year of college, correct? Correct.
2: Yes, correct.
0: <laughs> and your husband flew out during the pandemic to pick up his stuff and bring it home. That's another great story, but <laughs> probably not for you, but you, you do have yeah. a wonderful husband. Um, my question is this, what if there are listeners out there saying, oh, you just have an exceptional trisomy 21 child. He's, he's different than the other ones. What would you say to them?
2: Well, first of all, I'd be very sad because even at my son's college, I ran into families who felt like that. They would see my son and they'd say, oh, he's a student, right? Um, But to be able to think that their child could do the same is still a bit of a gap for families. Um, But it's interesting you mentioned that because when Kiernan was excelling in high school, even his pediatrician started saying things like, well, maybe he has mosaicism, Mm -hmm. which Ah. is a form where it's not in everybody's cell. How could he do so well if he actually had this genome that has all these bad prophecies? Um, So the point I want to make about all of this as as an infant mental health specialist is that it all has to do with the brain connections. We know in infant mental health, if you give a kid these opportunities, that early connection between parents, the opportunities to explore the world, the opportunities to do complex things, you get a complex brain. So there's some great research by Charlie Zena and others. that look at Romanian uh, babies who were in Romanian orphanages. Uh. And they find that those babies who were put into adoptive homes, who then had a more rich environment, you can look at their brains even decades later, look on brain scans, and you see the difference of that early nurturing environment versus the, you know, dozen or more kids per caregiver and no opportunity for
1: that. Isn't it amazing that that, those early connections, usually with mom and infant, actually change the structure of the brain? Uh, You know, you can demonstrate that, as you mentioned, on imaging, that a mom is quite literally shaping her child's brain just by staring into their eyes. I always find that just incredibly remarkable.
2: Yes, and actually some of the literature that's very cool, they've actually found that there's changes in dad's brains too.
0: Ooh, otherwise the husband
1: or the father, yes.
0: (laughs) I think I can say, Tom and
1: I could probably agree as husbands that our wives have the power to stare at us and change our brains. (laughs)
0: Yes, they do. So Robin, what are some myths about trisomy 21, which most people refer to as Down syndrome, in case they don't recognize the T21 language. What are some myths about T21 that you would like to dispel for our listeners?
2: Um, So the first myth I'd like to address is that joy and happiness are the greatest things that a child with trisomy 21 has to offer the world. Um, Even one of my graduate colleagues at, at, uh, when I got my second degree uh, believed that that was the greatest offering. And I don't contest that these are valuable traits. I mean, the data show that agreeableness is linked to success in any person. Um, but this narrow frame has been used to limit what children with 21 are allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so as an example, we were given clear messages that things would be better for our son if only we'd lower what we expected for him <laughs> and, in, and in turn what we expected from his teachers and mm-hmm. the school system as a whole.
0: Because that works for all kids, right? Lower your expectations. You won't be disappointed, right? <laughs> no, that doesn't right. work anywhere. <laughs> go out, Go so, ahead. Yes.
2: So, the second myth I'd like to dispel is that it's the third chromosome that stunts the thinking capacity of persons with trisomy 21. And I know this is very outside the box. I had some animated discussions with my external reader, um, who happens to be a geneticist, about this matter. But I still um, believe that any delays in thinking speed or cognitive capacity for persons with trisomy 21 really results largely. And I think maybe even entirely from these pressures from social bias and by what I mean is that it first of all, it takes a lot of energy to have other people look at you and say, oh, my gosh, it's too bad. You're just not very smart. I hope it would be better for you. But that's how it is. Um, So that takes a lot of energy. And the second thing is people don't maybe realize it, but when you're thinking those kinds of thoughts, you have little microaggressions. So that's been in the news a lot lately because it's one of the things that happens with racial bias. And people who are uh, the targets of that pick that up both at a, at a subconscious level. There's some research by uh, Stephen Porges about safety and social safety and how all of this is really conveyed at a nonverbal level and how important safety is for feeling um, okay in the world and growing in the world. So there's some European studies. I really haven't seen any in the US. And these are smaller studies. uh, Because again, it's almost as if it's not allowed to be looked at or talked about. But Edna Drapo and others in France and Rodriguez and others in Spain uh, did some interesting research on whether or not um, With Enya Drapo, it was with children, and with Rodriguez, it was with adults. If you had more um, facial features that were linked to trisomy 21, um, then people saw you as less intelligence. And in the second research, you actually didn't even have uniquely human emotions. So you only had the same types of emotions that an animal might have, but anything like remorse, or any of the more complex emotions were not assigned to people who had those facial features. Um, so it's like infrahumanization. You're not quite human, you're not quite a person, mm. um, and so forth. So that just gets in the way too of what kind of things persons with this diagnosis are allowed to do, or even what kind of opportunities are their parents allowed to offer them. There are subtle ways that the doors are closed and um, parents are steered a different direction.
0: Robin, you bring up something that reminds me of an episode Chris and I did on uh, ethnic disparities in health, and particularly in COVID. And one of the things we learned from our epidemiologist guest was a term called weathering. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's something that people in minorities, you know, no matter who the minority is in what country, and like you said, microaggressions are just little things that people say and do, and they wear you down. So it sounds like parents of Trisomy twenty one children often experience this weathering, and maybe they even give in to it. Do you think that's a reasonable analysis? Um, Yeah, I
2: do think that that's a reasonable analysis. In fact, that's one of the reasons that Craig and I uh, chose actually not to nest ourselves into the support groups for this particular community
1: Ah. uh, because.
2: Yeah, because we saw that we would never be able to keep our expectations as high as they needed to be Mm. for our son if we uh, got our support from. And the other point about that is I firmly believe that you just need to be able to see your kid as having normative abilities and normative um, expectations. So then you, you go to the library, you join the local Um, sports team if they let you um, those types of things because that's what other parents are doing they're not reading books on trisomy 21 they're reading books on early brain development they're reading books on infant massage they're reading books on all of those types of things so they have this wide open window um
1: and robin one of the things my wife and i have been fascinated by in, with our adoptive family is the effects of the biological siblings on the adopted children. I wonder if there's data or experience uh, in situations like this where uh, other children in the family have a positive or negative or neutral effect uh, on children with this diagnosis.
2: Um, I have to say I don't know. I'm not familiar with that data. I know there's data that shows that um, most individuals with trisomy 21 are quite quite happy, their families are quite happy on the whole, siblings are, are quite happy, um, so it, in fact the, the data actually shows they're actually more satisfied or happy than your average family or person. So,
0: Fascinating. Robin, this is a great time to take a break, and after the break I want to come back and talk about one of the most famous studies on how expectations influence outcome and ask for some of your reflection on it here on doctor doctor from the virtual studios of redeemer radio we're back on doctor doctor with the second half of our interview with dr robin trepto robin there is a study that's fascinated me ever since i learned about it and it was basically this in a san francisco school system some teachers were told that you've got these five students in your classroom who are set to take off intellectually based on testing that they've done. So watch out for them. And these five students soared ahead of the other students in the classroom. And later, we found out that in each of these classrooms, it was these students were chosen absolutely positively by random. They had not tested any better than the other students, but they did better because they believe the teachers treated them differently, they expected more from them. So that goes to your point about expectations influencing. But the thing that most surprised me is that when this was done if in like a sixth grade, if there was a low, medium, and high ability classroom, that when students in the low ability classroom excelled what they were supposed to do, this seemed to upset the teachers. And I didn't understand how that fits. So what comments do you have first on the first half of this where Just telling the teachers that these students were set to excel, even though they weren't, influenced how they came out. And then secondly, we'll talk about why they might be upset about the low-achieving ones doing far better than expected.
2: Um, So with regard to the first one, I think you kind of already summed that up pretty well, which is that the teachers um, paid more attention to, were warmer toward, and so forth with uh, those children who were seen to be higher-achieving. They expected more from them. Now, related to the second part, it's perplexing, I agree, and I probably wouldn't have time to speak to all the potential factors involved, but one theory I'll mention is that seeing intelligence as fixed versus changeable may have been a factor. So teachers Uh... might have, yeah, so teachers might have viewed children expected to perform less well as not being capable to grow intellectually, so then the teachers didn't even see the growth. So there are a few small studies that show that the intellectual capacity of children with trisomy 21 is, in fact, viewed as unchangeable. And that the more a person holds this as true, the less intelligent they rated these children who had trisomy 21 features.
0: So what evidence is there that if you spend more time with T21 kids, they do better intellectually?
2: Um, again, that's not something that I, I don't think anyone has dug in and given attention to that, first of all. And second of all, there's the issue of implicit bias that we've already talked about. I did another small pilot study. This was with early intervention workers. So the, the folks that you get sent to if you're a parent, because <laughs> they're supposed to help your child excel. But the sad thing was is that these early intervention workers, this was not specific to Trisomy 21, but it was specific to disability. 95% of them, nearly all, had strong bias against persons with disability. So again, If you've put a trisomy 21 kid in with people who pay lots of attention, but those people expect low expectations and do the sort of, oh, sweet child who's happy and cheery, you're not going to get the kind of change that we wanted in our family. I think the lens that's important is another Rosenthal study. And this one really struck me from undergraduate days. So Rosenthal was pretty brave and he decided him and some other researchers would go into a psychiatric Lord, they fake symptoms, so they get admitted. <laughs> well, yeah, you laugh, but here's the thing. Right away, they started acting like themselves. Nobody caught on.
0: Wow. Everybody.
2: Yeah. So my theory is that the doctors and the teachers, they only saw what they expected.
0: Hmm.
2: So, so again, in the classroom, teachers are only seeing what they expect. They don't notice that growth.
0: How do we get away from that? Because we all develop implicit biases. It helps us get through life. If we have to think through every single decision in depth, we would be paralyzed. So how do we find our own implicit biases and act more rationally?
2: So one of the things about that is first to recognize um, that you have um, implicit biases. Um, So just... Naming it has it has a, makes a change. Hmm. Um, the second thing that is, of course, that you you um, catch yourself and and change your thinking when you notice it consciously. Implicit, of course, means you're not really noticing it consciously. But you more you change what you do notice consciously, the more it'll change what you don't notice. Um, so related to that, I'd like to even speak to doctors and even uh, Catholic doctors because I think they. Uh, pro-life catholic doctors hold the lion's share on changing this paradigm specifically to, to trisomy 21 well you ask why doctors well first the data show that doctors of a group are actually somewhat less biased than others other professionals of the general public against persons with trisomy 21 so that's oh, some okay. optimistic piece there um, the second thing that's equally important is doctors hold a lot of social authority what they think about a medical condition matters. It matters to parents. It matters to everybody else in society. So there's a few steps to this process. The way I see it is that what doctors think about trisomy 21 are really rooted in, a, in the very model of clinical diagnosis that really helps them to help people. So what they, what they use, they use what they see the symptoms, prior cases of people who've had a condition, and the scientific data in order to make their clinical choices. And so that's all good and great. But in the case of biases about trisomy 21, these three data sets are all gonna paint a bleak picture due to the historical context. I mean, back in, 1866 when dr downs was first grouping these children together um it was based on those physical on those physical features and the other historical context that i didn't know when my son was born is that just 30 years three decades before he was born children with his diagnosis were routinely sent to institutions where they would get virtually no interaction with other people similar to those romanian orphanages uh. Yeah, so the data you get about their capability is based on that. In fact, there's a great um, article. It's not a research article, but it's a theoretical article by Christopher um, Borthwick in 1996. And he has a fabulous quote where he compares the capabilities of people with trisomy 21. He uses the other language, um, but he compares those using that black white intelligence gap where it's been shown that people thought black people aren't very intelligent, but it's really due that they were deprived of opportunities to learn and grow and they were given substandard education and so forth. And he points out that those opportunities and biases are even stronger with trisomy 21 because even families. Now, this is slowly changing. I see it in the news all the time. But even families did not expect these children to do well. Um, there was certainly no opportunity to, to make those, those changes, so.
1: It's fascinating, Robin, hearing you describe that. I think about um, you know, off-the-cuff comments I've heard said about children maybe with developmental disabilities or, or conditions such as tries to be 21, and people would make the sort of the off-the-cuff, well, your child's not going to Harvard, Um, And then now as an old experienced parent, I find myself thinking, I don't want any of my kids to go to Harvard. (laughs) That would be horrible. I can't think of a worse place to send them. And then I think, you know, my expectations have changed as I've matured as a parent. I want them to go to mass. I don't particularly care where they go to college. But it's about expectations and setting the goals are different because they're not the goals maybe that society has pressed upon us as parents. But the goals that we've learned as we mature in our in our parenthood has has changed. But much of what you said, it seems to me, could be applied to someone diagnosed with a cancer or, or some other devastating medical diagnosis. What we don't want to do is rob them of the opportunity to excel by destroying their hope.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And anecdotally, I know a case of an adult who, who did um, overcome a cancer diagnosis Um you know, through prayer and through those beliefs that that there was a possibility of healing. One of the things I think that's really powerful, though, that relates to parents is I actually wrote an article about my thoughts on this diagnosis. And one of the reviewers wrote back to me and said that in essence, they saw me as blaming parents. Of course, they didn't know I was a parent (laughs) writing the article, (laughs) right? So it gets to be tricky because if you say it's the environment, if you say it's opportunities, it sounds like parent blaming Mm -hmm. to people who are sort of stuck in the old ways of thinking.
0: So Um, what would be the best way of thinking? What is the paradigm that you want related to the genes that we are born with and the environment which we experience?
2: Well, the paradigm shift I want is that if you see a kid who has a that look like trisomy 21, or maybe they have some other condition that leads you to think they have lower uh, potential, uh, to be able to set that aside, and especially to be able to allow the parents to set that aside. Because again, going to infant mental health, we know, first of all, we know from our faith that our brain has amazing abilities to heal itself. It's been shown that people who have half a brain can fully recoup. All of that potential. So we need to allow families, and Catholic families are some of the larger group who are having children with Trisomy 21, right? Um, to allow families to believe that there's possibility that this child can excel and grow. And you know, even in reference to the Harvard uh, comment, maybe you do want your child to go to Harvard because <laughs> maybe that's something that you can hold out there mm. as as an example of how you're gonna bust through the paradigm. So maybe Mm. your child really won't go to Harvard, but let's take the case of my son. He wants to be a Catholic priest. Mm. Now, if you look at old church documents, individuals with trisomy 21 didn't used to be allowed to be confirmed. They didn't used to be allowed oh, to take communion. Wow. And certainly there, there are even smaller um, orders of uh, seminaries where they are not, uh, anyone with a disability is not allowed to apply to the seminary to study. So we are relying, we're praying it forward. We're totally relying on the doors that God opens um, as to how he goes forward with his dream. And that's the important to allow that dream to be high and um, allow parents to have it.
0: Uh, Robin, we knew somebody uh, here in our town uh, who was a member of a religious order here with uh, Trisomy 21. And he was a wonderful member uh, of the the order. Uh, And I remember
1: his, uh, Tom, I remember his mother explaining to me once at at a social gathering, uh, she was talking to a few of us standing there and she said, and I'll mess up the quotation, but she, she said something along the lines of, you know, his IQ number may be less than what you would expect but go ask him to explain the trinity and then step back and listen
2: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely which brings into question so there's some interesting literature on iq Uh, mm cross-cultural and so if you take a westernized iq major and you give it to someone in a different culture Sure. they turn out looking not very intelligent. <laughs> but if you give them an IQ measure that's based on what they do in their culture and how problem solving and all those things are done in their culture, they turn out pretty intelligent. So maybe they just needed that uh, IQ measure on the Holy Trinity, right?
0: There you go. Uh, Robin, there's a, a big term, but it has an important meaning for somebody who's born with genes the way that T21 um kids are, and that's something called epigenetic factors. Can you explain to listeners what that means in an example maybe of one or two with T21?
2: Uh, so essentially epigenetic factors means that what happens in the world outside experience changes what happens um, internally, um, brain functioning, and so forth. Um, so that's actually been explored in a couple of uh of more theoretical at this point uh, studies, one, uh, one by Boyce and Cobra, where they talk about those epigenetic factors and really see it as sort of the groundbreaking place that changes in this disorder are gonna go forward. Um, the interesting thing is in in, in uh, animal models, they've actually shown that if you put, uh, of course, it's always mice, and <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of animal research, <laughs> but anyhow, they put them in an enriched environment, which would include like social, it would be um, more licking by the mother, more opportunities to do complex mazes and so forth. They've actually shown that those animals can actually heal prior evidence of less intelligence. So it's pretty amazing uh, what that rich environment can do. And that's the epigenetic factor. In
0: other words, something in the environment can influence the way that the genes are actually working in the body.
2: Right. They can either um, stop a gene that's getting in the way or they might kind of trigger on a gene that's, yeah. And all of that is just now evolving in this area of research. It's pretty well, um, in just a normative uh, research, infant mental health, it's pretty well shown how important those factors are.
0: The only thing I remember from my college sociology class was something called the Hawthorne effect. Basically, that the very act of measuring something changes that thing. How, how does that play a role with uh, T21 and other so-called disabilities that children are born with?
2: So I think one of the ways that it it changes it, first of all, is just by having the conversation. So even this show, by bringing up the conversation, talking about it, I really can't even put into words how actually terrifying it was for me when I first began talking about this in my classes, when I first began proposing it as my dissertation, when I had discussions with a geneticist about why I use the language trisomy 21 instead of the other uh, language because of that. Fact that genes are not the same as what you see—that's mm-hmm. like one of the first developmental psychology is called the nature versus nurture debate. Yes. Which one has the most influence? But it was really terrifying for me to say those things out loud because there was lots. There was lots of pushback. There was lots of pushback to even dare to say that because you're you're really tearing to shreds that that paradigm that we can draw a line in this particular diagnosis. Because again, going back to Dr. Down and then um, going to you know, the finding of the uh, 21st chromosome, it was just sort of seen as cut and dried. This is a genetics, and we know genetics always lead to a certain outcome. Um, even though in reality it's not a one-to-one correspondence, um, the exceptions are few. In fact, there's, there is a um, documented case in the medical literature of a young man who had the mosaic form. So he didn't have crossed all of his, all of his body cells, but it was enough to be diagnosed. He had measured average intelligence in early adulthood. But here's the sad piece. He went to college and encountered that implicit bias mm. and essentially really still didn't reach <coughs> his, his potential. That's all in the article.
0: Robin, you mentioned um, offline a Journal of Pediatrics article that you thought was very important. Tell us about that
2: so so this uh, journal of pediatrics article um was written by two um physicians who were experts in medical communication so that would be in things like how do you tell parents about um, a certain condition how do you tell a patient about a certain condition and so forth and what they did was they combined forces with the parents of two two parents, the same child, of a child who had trisomy 21. And they basically began looking at that implicit factor early on, just based on what doctors say, don't say. Um, Just to give you an idea, it could even just be a look. It could be the fact that you hesitate a split second before you greet the family, before you say, oh, what a beautiful boy. It could be the fact that there's just a little bit of tension in your face when you say, oh, what a beautiful boy. Um, so they wrote that article in the Journal of Pediatrics, and I think it's really important since that's a, a standard, um, you know, in the pediatric field and for to have medical experts uh, beginning to explore that bias factor.
0: Robin, what resources would you recommend for parents of T21 children or other children with similar types of diagnoses?
2: So... That's like a $600 question because what I would recommend are resources on typical development. Um, most of all on infant bonding, videos, books, parent resources, There's it's all over the internet. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it in, in uh, any bookstore. Um, So the idea is to be able to figure out how to bond with your baby in deep and intellectually stimulating ways. And it's important to be able to know that even more intentionally because you have these these biases that are being put on you hanging in the background. So you need to have some extra resources uh, to be able to get past that. So it's really face-to-face social engagement, turn-taking, talking, sharing, things like that um you even really might need to put on blinders about what's typically expected of a child with this diagnosis so if it's medically needed then consult a doctor but as much as possible i guess i suggest just intentionally create the types of typical and challenging experiences as you would for any child in your family so you can go for so far as just to pretend right if you need to You you need to say that in order to shut out those interferences. So go to the library. I have a great picture of my son at about 18 months sitting at the library story time. He was in the newspaper listening as all those books were being read to the children. Mm. Um, And then the second thing are just hope building organizations. So Chris mentioned about this tearing down of parents' hope. So there is an organization right now that I think would be my favorite among, and it's called Ruby's uh, Rainbow Scholarship. And this is a mom who looked at her baby, like I looked at my son and said, I have an intelligent baby. And she had a different approach than me. She didn't go to graduate school. She formed an organization that provides scholarships Mm. to children who have trisomy 21. She uses the typical language again, but she's done an amazing job uh, raising funds for scholarship. My son has won uh, two of those scholarships. And I, you know, if your baby's born, make that connection because then you see that there are dozens of children with this diagnosis who are now going to college. And the more and more this happens, this is how the paradigm will shift because lack of role models was one of the things that Borthwick mentioned in 1996 as what was holding these kids back.
1: Well, Robin, it sounds like of the many things that your son has going for him, certainly top on that list has to be having you as his mother. Uh, so <laughs> well so thank you for, uh, thank you for restoring our hope that gets beaten up sometimes. And I know there are mothers and fathers that are going to listen to this podcast and they're going to be touched and they're going to be moved by the things that you've done uh, and the things that you've said. So uh, from, from these doctor, doctors to you, doctor, doctors, <laughs> God bless you and and God bless your work. Abortion. pornography, Embryonic stem cell research.
0: Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.
1: We're back on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And Tom, it's time for the trivia question in case people missed it uh, just before the break. Trisomy 21 describes a condition where a person has three copies of the 21st chromosome or chromosome number 21 in each of their cells. Uh, How many chromosome pairs do humans have and what do we call the last numbered chromosome pair instead of referring to that pair by a number and let the record show you told the audience this was an easy question (laughs) so human beings have 46 chromosomes or
0: 23 pair so there's a chromosome pair 21 chromosome pair 22 but when we get to chromosome pair we don't call it 23 what do we call it chris
1: the sex chromosome. The
0: sex chromosomes x and y in fact there are quote trisomies with three sex chromosomes, they can be triple X, can be XXY, XYY, uh, or it can be just 45 and have one X chromosome. So there are all kinds of things that can happen.
1: And you know, our listeners, when when they hear us say 23, they're probably thinking of the well advertised products, 23 and Me, and some of the other sort of yes. over the counter, in the mail, uh, ability to look at human chromosomes uh, and genes within those chromosomes. But you and I can remember in our medical school and college days, the idea of that, it it was like lightsabers. It was so science fictional. Yes, it Uh, was. And now we take it for granted, just a simple online order form, and you can look at your entire human genome. Just amazing. Things have changed.
0: Yes, they have. Thank (laughs) you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the Award-winning and official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio
1: Network. And we'd ask that you please share this good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review the show. We want to hear from you, hear what you like, and hear what you'd like to see us improve. Please send us your questions and tell us about something you heard and maybe how it affected your life. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
2: Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598
0: or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.